Good morning, Grace. Open your Bibles to First Peter. And if you want to make a place also in John chapter 13, we're going to actually going to go through several spots in John. But First Peter, as we start our new series today, I've titled this series Exiles, and I will explain in more detail next week why I have titled it thus. But just to hold you over, read through First Peter this week and see if you can see where I get the title to our new series. And it's not just because it's there in verse 1. So you have to read verse 1, but you have to keep reading. See if you can pick up on the words and the themes that we are exiles in this world. So please, read through First Peter this week if you have not done that already. There will also be a more formal and detailed introduction to 1 Peter next week where we, we will look more closely at the audience that Peter is writing to, some of the themes. But today I just want to focus on the author, the author of 1 Peter, which is the Apostle Peter. Understanding who wrote this epistle will actually help us as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper today. And since I'm delaying a formal introduction to 1 Peter until next week, how about some good news to hold you over? Okay? How about some good news in place of a formal introduction to the book of 1 Peter? Would you like to hear some good news as we begin this series? Well, here it is, and it happens to be our big idea today. Jesus loves messy people. You may wonder where I get that big idea, but if you're remotely familiar with the Bible, you know where I get it. And what tips us off to the good news that Jesus loves messy people is found right there in verse 1 with the name Peter. If you know anything about the Apostle Peter, you may be thinking, Peter? That Peter? The one that I read about in the Gospels? That guy is an apostle of Jesus? That guy? Wrote a book in the Bible? Really? Yes, and he actually wrote two books. That first verse in chapter 1 of 1 Peter ought to make you fidget just a little bit. When you read Peter's name, it ought to disturb you a little. In fact, it probably makes some of you mad. It probably bothers some of you because Peter was messy. Some of you don't like the fact that Jesus loves messy people, people who don't have their act together. For some of you, your idea is that Jesus only uses the squeaky clean. He uses the neat and tidy, well-groomed people with pressed pants and combed hair. But that's not Jesus. Oh, it might be a version of Jesus that you dreamed up in your mind, but the Jesus of the Bible loves messy people, people who don't have their act together. Jesus of the Bible loves messy people, and for that I'm grateful because I'm a mess. Jesus loves messy people. In fact, it's the only kind of people that he loves and the only kind of people that he likes to hang out with. As Mike Iaconelli says in his excellent book, which I believe is one of the best titles to a book ever, Messy Spirituality, God's Annoying Love for Imperfect People. Iaconelli says this, according to his critics, Jesus did God all wrong. He went to the wrong places, said the wrong things, and worst of all, let just anyone into the kingdom. 
Jesus scandalized an intimidating elitist country club religion by opening membership in the spiritual life to those who had been denied it. What made people furious was Jesus' irresponsible habit of throwing open the doors of his love to the whosoever's, the just anyone's, and the not a chancers like you and me. Nothing makes people in the church more angry than grace. It's ironic. We stumble into a party we weren't invited to and find the uninvited standing at the door making sure no other uninviteds get in. Then a strange phenomenon occurs. As soon as we are included in the party, because of Jesus' irresponsible love, we decide to make grace more responsible by being self-appointed kingdom monitors, guarding the kingdom of God, keeping the riffraff out, which as I understand it, are who the kingdom of God is supposed to include. Jesus loves messy people, people who don't have their act together people like the apostle Peter. And verse 1 tells us that. Look at verse 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter belongs to Jesus Christ, and Jesus loves those who belong to him, even when they're messy. Peter was messy, like all of us. Maybe you're not familiar with Peter's story, so let me give you some highlights because it matters if you know the backstory about this author. If you come to grips with who Peter is and how the Gospels describe him, then it will help you understand his letter better. And the Gospel writers did not clean up Peter's image. They paint a picture of Peter with all of his warts. They show us his ugly side. They don't give Peter a makeover. They show us Peter with rumpled, mad scientist hair, disheveled, outspoken, crass, and downright messy. Peter really could have used a marketing team and a PR team and an agent and maybe even a lawyer. And I would venture to guess that Peter could have used a wardrobe team. He was a fisherman, and I don't want to generalize fishermen, but have you seen the guys on the TV show The Deadliest Catch? They could use a hot shower. So I picture Peter, the fisherman, with barbecue stains on his T-shirt, reeking of fish, messy hair, the kind of guy that burps out loud and has no idea of social graces. That's how I pictured Peter. He's just rough around the edges, He keeps the edges of his life wild. Although there was that time in John's gospel that Peter was fishing in his underwear and he saw the resurrected Jesus on the shore and he had the decency to put his clothes on before he jumped in the water to swim to Jesus. I'm always surprised to read that because I pictured G- Peter just jumping into the water in his boxers when he notices Jesus on the shore, the resurrected Jesus. But he actually takes the time to put his clothes on before he swims to shore to see Jesus. I'm always surprised to read that the quick to speak and act disciple, the open mouth insert foot disciple, actually took the time to put his clothes on before he swam to see Jesus. But I also have a feeling that it wouldn't have bothered Jesus if Peter had not put on his robe. 
Because I have a feeling that Jesus loves us even when we're in our underwear. That incident in John 21 might be the one time where Peter did something right. He actually had the sense of mind to put his clothes on. But the rest of Peter's story is the stuff of reality shows and afternoon talk shows. Like the time when Jesus called Peter Satan. Remember that? Jesus actually called Peter Satan. In Mark 8, Jesus tells the disciples that he will suffer many things and that he will be put to death. Let me read it to you. Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 33. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Peter hears Jesus speak of his impending death, and Peter will have none of it, because Jesus is not supposed to die in Peter's mind, in Peter's theology. So Peter took Jesus aside. He took Jesus aside to rebuke Jesus. Imagine that. Peter rebukes Jesus for all of this crazy talk. And how does Jesus respond? He calls Peter Satan. In case you did not have enough coffee today, that's not a compliment. Calling someone Satan is not a compliment. And let me give some marriage advice here real quick. Don't ever say to your spouse, get behind me, Satan. Don't ever think, I'm just being like Jesus. I'm just following Jesus. I'm going to be like Jesus. Get behind me, Satan. It will not end well. It'll end in my office or Greg's office or Pastor James's office. I'm just looking out for my married peeps here, okay? Peter was messy. There's that time Peter denied Jesus not just once, not twice, but three times. And all of the gospel writers include this story of Peter's denial. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John include the story of Peter denying Jesus. It's like if you're writing a gospel, this is the one story you do not want to leave out. And I like John's account of Peter's denial the best because John tells us in his gospel about the two charcoal fires that were significant in Peter's life. Maybe you never noticed the two charcoal fires in, Mark's, in John's gospel. Dr. Mark Bailey pointed this out to me in seminary. These two charcoal fires were signposts on Peter's spiritual journey. They were key events in his life, and I trust that they'll be just as moving in yours, especially today as we messy sinners will eat and drink at the Lord's Supper. So turn to John's Gospel in chapter 13. John chapter 13. Before we look at the two charcoal fires in John's gospel, let's read Jesus' words where he told Peter in advance that he would deny Jesus three times. In John chapter 13, verses 36 through 38, beginning in verse 36. 
John 13, 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I I will lay my life down for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay your life down for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So Peter, like most of us, was confident in his love and his devotion to Jesus. Peter was confident that he'd never deny Jesus. Peter was confident in his love for Jesus. But he'd soon learned that the most important thing about the Christian life is not our love for God, but God's love for us. So Peter swears that he'd lay his life down for Jesus and Jesus shoots it down and tells him that he will actually betray him not just once, but three times. You know we're just like Peter, don't you, Grace? Please don't throw Peter under the bus anymore because you are Peter and I am Peter. We think we're so good. We think we love Jesus with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But our commitment to Jesus stinks, just like Peter's. I have some friends that attend a church where their church logo is a rooster. And when you see it for the first time, you think, really? A rooster? A rooster church logo and the church is in Texas so a rooster church logo ain't that far-fetched in Texas y'all but when you realize that they have a rooster church logo to remind them that they are doubters and that they are skeptics and that they are messy sinners just like Peter then suddenly a rooster church logo ain't so bad so their logo of the rooster And the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, including Peter's rooster crowing story, these are just reminders to us of the good news that Jesus loves messy people, people who don't have their act together. And Peter is about to show us just how messy he is. So flip over to John chapter 18 and we'll pick up the story just after Jesus is arrested. John chapter 18. After Jesus has been arrested, Peter followed closely behind to see what would happen. So we'll read about that in John 18 verses 15 through 18. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. And since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. And the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire. Because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. Now jump down to verses 25 through 27. John 18 verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, 
I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose, Peter, whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Let's pause right there. I didn't tell you about this. You know this story about Peter, don't you? That when they, when they come to arrest Jesus in the garden, Peter will have none of it. So Peter takes out his sword and chops off a guy's ear. Now, you understand that Peter just wasn't like, I'm just going to cut your ear off, right? You know what he's doing here, don't you? He wants to chop the guy's head off who wants to take his Lord away. And so Peter swings at the guy, and the guy's quick enough that he moves out of the way that only his ear gets cut off. And Jesus heals the guy's ear. But that guy's right here. Did I not see you in the garden with him, said a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. It's like, you cut off the ear of my cousin Cletus. I think I saw you in the garden. Peter denied. I don't know him. And at once, a rooster crowed. Two observations. I want to show you here how Peter was a cursing fool and show you the significance of the two charcoal fires. So if you like alliteration, there you go. Cursing fool and charcoal fires. First, the cursing fool. John's gospel doesn't record this detail, but Peter actually cursed and swore that he did not know Jesus. In Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 14, verse 71, and in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 26, verse 74, they actually record that Peter cursed and swore that he did not know Jesus when they asked him. In fact, Peter most likely cursed Jesus. He wasn't calling a curse down on himself. Peter was actually cursing Jesus. In his commentary on the Gospel of Mark, R.T. France explains Peter's curse. Its meaning is to curse someone or something other than oneself. In this context, the natural object to be understood is Jesus. So that Mark portrays Peter as voluntarily cursing Jesus. This understanding of the text, which Christian interpreters naturally find unwelcome, is the most probable sense of Mark's words, though he has avoided too blatant an offense by leaving the object of the verb unstated. So Peter is actually cursing Jesus in Mark 14 and in Matthew 26. He's calling a curse down on his Lord, on Jesus. And the irony is that in a few short hours, Jesus would go to the cross where he would bear the curse of the law for sinners, messy sinners like Peter. Peter would get his wish in time. Jesus would be accursed for Peter. Jesus would be accursed for Peter's sins. Jesus would be accursed for Peter's sins, which included denying Jesus and calling a curse down on Jesus. So Peter was saying this. He was saying, curse you, Jesus. Curse you, Jesus. And Jesus' reply was yes. Yes, I will bear the curse of the law for you, Peter, because I love you and all the messy people that my father has given me. 
And it's as if Mark couldn't record these words in his gospel in verse 71. It's as if Mark is like, I can't even write that. But these are the words that Mark wanted to write, but he's so uncomfortable to write it. But Mark wanted to write, but Peter began to invoke a curse on Jesus and to swear. But Mark couldn't bring himself to record those words, so he leaves the object, which is Jesus, out of the sentence. But what's more staggering than that is that Mark records this story. Scholars believe that Mark was personally discipled by, you guessed it, Peter. Peter discipled Mark, and so Mark's gospel is an eyewitness account straight from Peter. And Peter actually tells Mark this story of when he cursed Jesus. I mean, if I'm Peter, I leave out the story where I cursed Jesus. I mean, sure, I might tell Mark that, yeah, Jesus called me Satan one time. I might tell Mark, yeah, I denied Jesus three times. But to go and tell Mark this, hey, bro, remember that story about me denying Jesus three times? There's actually more. I didn't just deny Jesus. I actually cursed him. Right there in front of all those unbelievers and within earshot of Jesus because he was there and he saw me and he heard it. Right there in front of my Lord, I actually said, curse you, Jesus. Be cursed by God, Jesus. I don't think I'd add that detail, but Peter does. He tells Mark to add the part about cursing Jesus. Wow. And we want to throw Peter under the bus? Let me ask you, how upfront are you about your sin? I don't mean do you go and publish your sin on Facebook. Some of you do. I don't mean go and publish your sins to the world. I don't mean, you know, run into church and tell everyone you've been lusting over someone or tell everyone that you embezzled someone. I mean, there's wisdom in who you, you share your struggles with. But, but how, I'm talking about how open are you about your sin? Do you hide it? Do you act like you don't struggle with anything? Do you act like you have your act together? Are you honest about who you are as a messy sinner? Peter knew who he was. And he knew his Savior. Peter was free to admit his faults, free to admit his mistakes, free to admit his failures, and free to admit his sins. Why? Because Peter was exposed at the cross. Peter was exposed at the cross where Jesus took the curse of the law upon himself for sinners. So Peter was free to admit his sins and failures and to tell Mark to include this story because Peter knew one thing. He knew it firsthand. Jesus loves messy sinners. Peter was exposed at the cross so he could tell Mark, hey, add that story about me cursing Jesus. It's my story. I own it. Peter was exposed at the cross. So were you. So was I. The cross is a giant billboard screaming out to the entire world that you are seriously messed up. Seriously messed up, so much so that the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, had to become a man, the God-man, and to live a perfect life for you and to die a perfect death for you and be raised from the dead. That's how messed up you are. 
It took the eternal God to come into time and space to fix you. And that's what the cross is. It's a giant billboard screaming out to all of us that we are all messed up because of sin. You were exposed at the cross. So there's no need to hide behind some fake exterior. No need to wear masks to church. No need to act fake. No need to act like you have it all together because no one has it all together. Only Jesus does. So if you're a visitor here for the first time or maybe you're church shopping and you've been here for a few times, you need to know this about this church. We are sinners. We are messed up. We have issues. We are not perfect. And if you do not understand that about us, you will be unnecessarily disappointed. Only one person here has his act together, and his name is Jesus. And this was Martin Luther's point when he said this. May a merciful God preserve me from a Christian church in which everyone is a saint. I want to be and remain in the church and little flock of the faint-hearted, the feeble, and the ailing, who feel and recognize the wretchedness of their sins, who sigh and cry to God incessantly for comfort and help, who believe in the forgiveness of sins. Luther said, I don't want to be a part of a church where everybody's perfect, they all have their act together. And I don't either. That's the kind of church that I hope we are, a church that is centered on the good news of the gospel for messy people. And if we are a gospel-centered church, then what Jared Wilson says will be true. If the gospel is regularly being preached in your church, you will eventually become a magnet for the messiest kinds of sinners. So yes, this church is full of sinners, full of messy people, full of insecure people, full of scared people, full of people like Peter and every other flawed person in the Bible. But we take great comfort that Jesus came for people like us. That's good news. He came for the whosoever's, the just anyone's, and the not a chancers like you and me. And Peter. Mike Iaconelli also says this. What landed Jesus on the cross was the preposterous idea that common, ordinary, broken, screwed up people could be godly. What drove Jesus' enemies crazy were his criticisms of the perfect religious people and his acceptance of the imperfect non-religious people. The shocking implication of Jesus' ministry is that anyone can be spiritual, Scandalous? Maybe. Maybe truth is scandalous. Maybe the scandal is that all of us are in some condition of not-togetherness, even those of us who are trying to be godly. Maybe we're all a mess, not only sinfully messy, but inconsistent messy, up-and-down messy, in-and-out messy. Now I believe, now I don't messy. I get it. Now I don't get it messy. I understand. Uh, now I don't understand messy. 
This was hard for me to understand this truth for so many years because I knew I was a wreck. I knew that I was a mess. I knew that I was a sinner. And in the middle of seminary, I almost couldn't take it anymore. I knew my sin. I just didn't know the gospel like I know it now. And I remember flying out to California for Christmas to visit Heather's family once. And I remember telling my mother-in-law at a restaurant in La Cunada, I don't think I can do this. I can't be a pastor. I'm a mess. I'm a wretch. I'm broken. I'm screwed up. Who am I to get up and preach? Who am I to tell other people what to do? And I didn't know it then, but a few years later, God in his grace led me back to the gospel, back to Jesus And that's when I rediscovered the gospel, and that's why I can't quit talking about it. Because Jesus set me free. Yes, I'm a mess, but he loves me. And that lifts the burdens off your shoulders so that you can fly. It's not about me. It's not about me telling people how to live or what to do. It's all about Jesus. It's all about telling messy sinners where they can find grace and restoration and cleansing and freedom. It's all about telling people, it's okay if you're a mess, so is your pastor. And I'm so messy that I almost forgot to tell you about the two charcoal fires. See, I told you I was not perfect. So we saw that Peter's cursing of Jesus took place around a charcoal fire as he was warming himself. Well, guess where messy Peter gets restored? Around a charcoal fire. Look at John chapter 21. John 21, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, the resurrected Jesus. And yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Remember, just a few days later, Peter knew his sin. He knew that he had denied Jesus. He had cursed Jesus. And when he sees Jesus, what does he do? He jumps out of the boat and starts taking off swimming for the shore. Grace, don't let your sin keep you from Jesus. That's why he came. He came for messy sinners. As Puritan Richard Sibbs aptly put it, shall our sins discourage us when he appears there only for sinners? See, Peter knew this, and he jumped out of that boat because he knew he needed Jesus. And to think 
that we throw Peter under the bus all the time. Tell me, how many of you wallow in your sin and in your condemnation instead of running to Jesus? How many of you are weighed down with the guilt of what you did last week or last night? All of us do that at some point. But Peter knew something that Richard Sibbs knew that we sometimes forget. Shall our sins discourage us when he appears there only for sinners? So Peter jumped out of that boat because he knew he needed Jesus. Some of you need to jump out of the boat today. Just take off. Don't put your clothes on like Peter. Just jump out of the boat and swim to shore because Jesus is waiting for you. And he will restore you like he restored Peter on the beach that day. Look at John 21 in verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Just think what went through Peter's mind when he saw and smelled that charcoal fire. All the memories of his denial and cursing Jesus around that charcoal fire came flooding back. And I think Jesus knew this. I think Jesus intentionally had a charcoal fire going. I think Jesus wanted to make it concrete in Peter's mind. I think Jesus was saying to Peter, yes, you blew it around a charcoal fire. But I'm here to restore you around one. I'm here to restore you around a charcoal fire to let you know that we are in fellowship with one another. That your sin has not separated you from me. So let's eat. Let's celebrate grace and freedom and restoration by eating some fish. What do you say, Pete? How about some red snapper to snap you out of your spiritual funk? Some of you need to know that there is restoration and freedom and grace as we gather around the charcoal fire, if you will, of the Lord's Supper today. Jesus is here and he's waiting for you at this table. For some of you, you're not Christians. You're not disciples. You need to repent, own up to your sin Turn from your sin. Admit that you are a rebel. Admit that you have disobeyed him. Admit that you deserve death because you worship yourself. You live for yourself. Admit that you want to be spared from eternity in hell forever because of your rebellion. Admit that. And then come to Jesus. He's here. He will welcome you. Whatever state you're in, just run to Jesus. Some of you, are already Christians, but you feel dirty all the time. You just can't seem to shake that feeling that you haven't measured up, that you don't have your act together. You're messy. You just feel dirty all the time. Some of you are like, you know what? I don't think Jesus loves me, but I don't even think he likes me. Well, guess what, Christian? He's crazy about you. He's just waiting for you to quit trying so hard to be good. He's waiting for you to just run into his arms. 
So no one here is hopeless. I don't care how messy you are. You can't be too messy for Jesus. He came for messy people. Messy people are his people. Messy people are his specialty. So just come. I don't care how messed up you are. There's hope. All you have to do is run to him. It's why he came to fix broken people like you and me. And we'll talk a lot more about it next week, but John Calvin described the Christian life as a journey where God spreads a banquet before us. And in his book, Calvin on the Christian life, glorifying and enjoying God forever, Michael Horton describes Calvin's thought this way. Yet for Calvin, the Christian life is a pilgrimage with a banquet spread in the wilderness for weary travelers. We have passed from the courtroom to the family room, pilgrimage and banquet. These two motifs are woven together frequently in Calvin's teaching. While the banquet motif highlights the present joys of that salvation we already possess in Christ, pilgrimage suggests patient endurance. We, we know where we are going, and we already have a foretaste of the feast's rich fare, but we have not yet arrived at the wedding supper of the Lamb. A pilgrim has not yet arrived, nor is he or she an aimless wanderer or tourist, but someone called away with the throng to the city of God based on a promise. Along the way, God spreads a table in the wilderness to refresh his people in anticipation of the wedding feast with the bridegroom in glory. And part of that feast is right here at this table today. In the Lord's Supper, God spreads a table in the wilderness to refresh his people in anticipation of the wedding feast with the bridegroom in glory. This table is for messy sinners, weary sinners, that we, by faith, may feed on Jesus and get strength for the journey. And the whole reason that we're invited to this table, this family dinner table, the whole reason that the whosoevers and the just anyones and the not a chancers like you and me and Peter, the whole reason that we can come to this table is because Jesus loves messy people. Is it scandalous? Yes, but it's also good news. It's good news that gives this messy pastor a lot of hope. And as we take a moment here and pray and prepare our hearts to receive the elements at the Lord's table, I want our prayer today to be a prayer out of the Valley of Vision, a collection of Puritan prayers and devotions. The prayer on the Lord's Supper, I want to pray for us as we prepare to eat and drink and celebrate the peace that we have with God through Jesus. Let this be our prayer today. God of all good, I bless thee for the means of grace. Teach me to see in them thy loving purposes and the joy and strength of my soul. Thou hast prepared for me a feast, and though I am unworthy to sit down as a guest, I wholly rest on the merits of Jesus and hide myself beneath his righteousness. 
when I hear his tender invitation and see his wondrous grace, I cannot hesitate, but must come to thee in love. By thy spirit, enliven my faith rightly to discern and spiritually to apprehend the Savior. While I gaze upon the emblems of my Savior's death, may I ponder why he died and hear him say, I gave my life to purchase yours, presented myself an offering to expiate your sin, shed my blood to blot out your guilt, opened my side to make you clean, endured your curses to set you free, bore your condemnation to satisfy divine justice. Oh, may I rightly grasp the breadth and length of this design. Draw near Obey, extend the hand, take the bread, receive the cup, eat and drink, and testify before all men that I do for myself gladly, in faith, reverence and love, receive my Lord to be my life, strength, nourishment, joy, delight. In the supper, I remember his eternal love, boundless grace, infinite compassion, agony, cross, redemption, and receive assurance of pardon, adoption, life, and glory. As the outward elements nourish my body, so may thy indwelling spirit invigorate my soul until that day when I hunger and thirst no more and sit with Jesus at his heavenly feast. In the name of our gracious God, we pray. Amen.